Trial Brief with your host, David Otto. We are 30 days from a deadly insurrection on our nation's capital. We're also about to start the second impeachment trial of the ex-president of the United States. And today, just before we came on the air, there was a vote in the House to remove a House member from various committees due to her, forget about her lunacy, but her physical threats of violence to other members in the House. And I can't think of a better person to have with me tonight to talk about this than Terry Canefield. And those of you who don't know Terry Canefield obviously don't have a Twitter account. Terry is a, uh, an author. She's an attorney. She's a blogger. She's also a Twitter rock star. What I mean by that is, you know, she's not a rock star in the sense of, of being flashy and just confrontational and controversial. She's a rock star because she has given maybe hundreds of thousands of people an education, hope. You've been such a calming influence too on, on a lot of people during this time. So Terry, thank you so much for, for joining me on the trial brief. I really appreciate your time. Well, I'm glad to be here. Thank you. Strange times indeed. First of all, I've got a bone to pick with you because I love your blog. I, I follow your blog. I, I think it's amazing. I think you do just such a great job of explaining concisely and accurately. I read it all the time, but preparing for this to have you on, I wanted to talk about the blog you wrote a couple of days ago. And of course, in the meantime, you've shot out a couple of new ones that I'd love to spend the time talking about as well. And we'll talk about fire hoses of falsehoods later and things like that. But it's like a fire hose of great blogs and, and of, of, of great insight of really thoughtful pieces. So I'm mad at you only in that I, I can't cover all of them right now. I really would love to. But I'm interested in your background. You're an attorney, but you became an attorney later on in life. I have an undergraduate degree in philosophy and design, but I have a master's degree in fiction writing. And so that lends itself to a lot of jokes, right? Because I write fiction and I wrote criminal defense appellate briefs. I joke that there are lawyers and uh, judges in California who thought I only wrote fiction. I'm really a writer and I went into law school already as a writer. I was teaching college level English and I was publishing regularly. And I initially saw my, my law degree as another writing credential. I did end up practicing. I had a private appellate criminal defense practice for uh, more than 12 years. When I first went to law school, I actually considered, I was at Berkeley and I considered doing a joint journalism degree because I was interested in sort of legal commentary, legal political commentary and analysis. And I was, um, I didn't end up doing that for a lot of reasons. And when I first started coming on Twitter, I felt like I was having my career as a sort of legal journalist. And I have actually been writing lately for the Washington Post and NBC and doing some um, opinion and analysis. So I'm sort of in the career I think I, I wanted initially. In, in terms of writing, I've written for all audiences, including um, middle grade and high school. So I've written nonfiction for all levels, also fiction. I've written um, children's novels, I've written for adult. You know, now I'm writing for, I'm blogging. So kind of just more writing. And you could tell, you know, you have that appellate style very concise. <laughs> you know, you don't waste too many words. And, um, you know, you really give a sometimes a very different insight to to the subjects. But how did you get involved with Twitter? How, how did that come about? I was initially going to write a book called How Trump Happened. 
And this was several years ago. And so I started doing a lot of research. So some of the, um, what informs a lot of my threads is I did some reading. Um, I had already had a pretty solid background in American history, American political history, because I had written a series of biographies in American history, constitutional history. So I had that piece of it. I read a lot of political psychology, sort of different aspects of how Trump happened, including his background. Um, I became more interested in party politics, although I had some of that for my series. So initially, I had a, actually I had a Twitter account for a while, um, but I only used it to find out if somebody was talking about me. So basically all I had ever tweeted was, thank you for reading my book. And I'm so glad you liked my book. Um, so I thought, well, wouldn't it be interesting to just start tweeting out my research? And so I started tweeting out my research as I did it. And my Twitter feed took off. And I thought this is like so much fun just to write these Twitter threads. So I ended up actually losing interest in the book. Although now I have written, I have two books coming out. Actually, I have a book coming out with Macmillan on um, disinformation. So I have actually written for publication, but that's how it started. And then the blog happened because I had all these Twitter threads. And when I thought that it was research for a book, I needed a way to have access to all my material. So I really don't know how to use a database, but I know how to use a WordPress site. So I had an off-site, offline WordPress site that I was using just to organize all my research. And then when I lost interest in writing the book, I made my blog public. So all of the research I had been doing, I just made it all public on my blog. So that's how that happened. I'd love to talk to you a little bit about your take on what we just went through, what we went through in terms of this lurching, it seems like a lurching of America toward authoritarianism. I love the way you you synthesize that. And, you know, I want to get your thoughts on how you look at this large swath of this country that has anti-democratic views. Occasionally, I have people tell me it's never been this bad. When I hear that, I say, well, you know, that's that's a pretty narrow view of American history. Because if you consider American history, say, from the viewpoint of a Black woman, it's not true that it's never been this bad. Another thing that people say, which is completely not grounded in American history, is that we're in something new, that this is altogether new, that the last 40 years, there's been this major corruption sort of resulting in the Republican Party. And this is, to me, not grounded in either psychology or our history. So let me back up and say that when the country was founded, we were not democratic, right? We had these mm -hmm. wonderful words. We had this, all men are created equal. But in reality, at the time the country was founded, it was a very small group of white men who made all the decisions. And women didn't. Women were um, with a law of coverture, which said that women were completely subsumed by their husbands and their identity was subsumed. And of course, we had slavery. There's really, say, two views of American history. And one is that we started out with some real good ideas and we've been improving gradually ever since. So I see people say it's never been this bad. Think about, you know, life for Native Americans or life for, you know, the, you know, the African-Americans. So we start out with white men sort of in control and then elite white men. And then in the time of Andrew Jackson, we brought in sort of all white men. And then after the Civil War, we had this moment, sort of a rebirth of democracy, but it didn't last very long because we know that what happened after the Civil War is the South ended up, whatever you want to call them, the white supremacists, the, pe mm -hmm. the anti-democratic people, they closed ranks again and gave us Jim Crow and lynchings. Then we had the civil rights movement, which tried to burst out of that again and include all people. 
And what we're really writing right now is a backlash against that civil rights movement. And so sort of a turning point would have been the case, the Supreme Court case that desegregated schools and declared racial segregation unconstitutional. And that really wasn't that long ago. And so all along, we've been gradually expanding the democracy. And it was only in the last 50 or 60 years that we actually came close to a true liberal democracy where all adults are able to participate in civic life. And so we've come close to it. And what we're experiencing now is an enormous pushback, but it's the same pushback that Susan B. Anthony was up against. And it's the same pushback that Thurgood Marshall was up against. It's the same forces that, that Frederick Douglass was dealing with. And so the idea that there's something new is, is really, he said, it's really not grounded in history. And we can learn from how in the past we've gotten out of these extremely anti-democratic moments. The closest we've ever been now, where we have members of the House who are not just white male. We have, all, we have, we have a kind of a diversity. Actually, in one of my books, I put a picture of the House of Representatives. I think I, my picture was like in the 1940s and 1950s. And they all looked alike. They were all white men. And white Christian men dominated the universities, they dominated government, they dominated business, they dominated the courts. And so far from being, it's never been this bad, what's happening is that we actually have this burst of, we're bursting into a kind of liberal democracy that we've never had, and we're getting a pushback from that. One of the problems was the way some of us were taught in school. So we were taught that the great heroes made all of this possible. So Martin Luther King Jr. and all these great heroes of the past burst through all of these barriers and now they gave us this wonderful democracy. And we're taught that as if the battle was won, as if it's, it's done. And now we have this democracy and now somebody's trying to take it away from us. Instead of seeing it as a constant battle, that it, it has to be won in every generation. And there are always anti-democratic forces working against the democracy and for, for a variety of reasons. Some people who believe they are in favor of democracy will often come out with something very anti-democratic. I can even give you an example from about two years ago, there was a lawyer on Twitter who tweeted out this very panicked thing where she said, we cannot survive two more years with Trump in office. We cannot survive it. He has to be taken out of the White House. And she's liberal. And so I responded to her and I said, there's actually, without the Senate on board, there's no way to do that. So there is no way to do it. She called me a bad lawyer and blocked me. <laughs> um, and two years later, but there, that's anti-democratic mm -hmm. to say, and whatever excuse you want to come up with, well, he didn't win the popular vote, you know, whatever excuse you want to come up with to say, we have to get him out of the White House now yeah. when there's no legal means for doing you know, that, that. That goes to the point that democracy is hard, right? Democracy is slow. Democracy is like a long slog in the mud. Okay. <laughs> and what happens is that people don't want that slog. They want results. They want results fast. They want this today. Okay. And they're not waiting 10 years or five years. And, and people, they can't wait. And it's, and in some ways it feels really urgent. Like I also had someone tell me the planet is being destroyed. We can't wait. 
we have to do something right now. And it's like, but this was while Trump was still in office. And he's like, well, I, I feel your frustration. Mm-hmm. Actually, I read this interesting thing today. Somebody who knew um, Holly from Missouri was saying that he knows he's lying, but he's lying because he believes that the power he will get through his lies mm-hmm. will, it will enable him to do the kinds of things that need to be done. That's the same kind of the end justifies the means when people say we have to do this somehow when there's no way to do it. I give the example, if you don't believe democracy is hard work, run for local office and try to get something done. <laughs> That's good. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, I mean, yeah we need sure. a traffic light on our corner over here in our, our town. And it's very sure. dangerous. People push back and the businesses say they're worried about the rezoning and you can't get the votes. And so, so it's very difficult and um, people get impatient with democracy. Mm-hmm. And I think they also, people tend to misunderstand sort of what it is. So they'll right. say, if this doesn't happen, it's all over. And it's like, well, you know, what does that mean? My husband lived through the Pinochet dictatorship. Mm-hmm. It's never all over right? because people peacefully got out of the Pinochet dictatorship. I think there's also a misunderstanding, like like one of the, because we're sort of ranging over a lot of topics here, yeah. but one of the things you hear people say is, if, fill in the if, doesn't happen, it's all over. Mm-hmm. And I always push back against those because it doesn't work like that. So the latest was, if Trump is not prosecuted and put in jail, rule of law doesn't exist anymore. Mm-hmm. It's like, okay, so let's think about this. <laughs> First off, you have to get a jury, unanimous right. jury. Mm-hmm. So if you have, so what you're telling me is if you have three Trump holdouts on the jury, then democracy is over. Right. There's a lot of that. And I think social media lends itself to this kind of panicking. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, it's odd that people say I'm calming because I think I have a pretty good realistic view of what we're up against. Yeah. And I think that's what you do. You bring everybody down to to earth here. And, you know, the reaction is hair on fire, you know, with both sides, everything is, has to be, you know, like you just mentioned, you had that lawyer or whoever it was who wanted Trump in jail, you know, immediately. And, you know, maybe because they thought that he was trampling on the rule of law when in fact throwing him in jail immediately would be trampling on the rule of law. And, and throwing him out of office. How? I mean, right, there's, there's right. no way to do it, you know, and right. actually there's the, the way to do it is you have to persuade enough senators and how do you do that? Well, you have to, their, their constituents, yes, I understand their constituents live in you know, the Fox News bubble mm-hmm. and they're not going to listen to you. So what you have is a serious political problem. You have, a, you have a political problem that requires a political solution. There is no quick fix. On the other hand, it's a constant battle, right? So it's never quite over. And every generation has to, has to renew the commitment. The actions of the Republican Party right now really becoming a, you know, it's not really a conservative versus liberal country anymore. It's really a democracy versus anti-democracy country. And this, again, lurch toward or taking these anti-democratic positions, I should say, by the Republican Party is a desperate grasping of the last vestiges of their power because they know that we're becoming more diverse. They know that this is really the end of that rule. Is it that they're willing to to really put aside democratic principles just to regain power? I, I'm just not sure. I mean, it looks to me, it just looks to me that it's it's expedient, right? It's it's just for 
today. It's transactional. It's it's just to stay in the Senate. Of course. I mean, that that's a lot of it. There's so many different ways of sort of dividing this out. So instead of saying democratic, anti-democratic, another way to sort of, you know, separate this out is to say we have fairness versus hierarchy. There are people who believe that nature forms a hierarchy and some people are naturally on top and some people are naturally on the bottom. And this is, this is racism, right? That's one of the ways that it manifested itself in the 19th century. When Paul Ryan talks about the makers and the takers, Mm -hmm. that's what he's talking about. People don't want their money going to welfare. That's what they're talking about. And so there's a sense of hierarchy and it's all about power. And then there's another way of viewing government, which is that government creates fairness. Some people don't believe that fairness is possible. It's very cynical. And so you see that kind of cynicism where People talk about it as projection, but if you don't believe that fairness is possible, you think the other side is also just trying to get power. So yes, it, it's definitely about power, but they think the they think both sides. So the Republican view right now is yes, they need to maintain power, but they believe that the Democrats are doing the same thing. They don't believe the Democrats are really interested in fairness. They think that it's also a power grab. When Minorities say we want equality. They don't hear they want equality. They hear they want our spot. They want our place at the top because someone's got to be at the top. So it's either us or them. If you think in terms of hierarchy, if that's the way that you sort of view the world, then yes, it's about power because you think someone else wants your spot on top. And this idea, if you take FDR, who was really a fairness president, that he came from the very wealthy class, but he really wanted to create an even playing field. He wanted to create fairness, but his critics thought it was just power grab. They believe that somebody's trying to take something away from them. One of the really um, amazing authors, classical, very important political political psychologist, Richard Hofstadter, Mm -hmm. and he wrote a book called The Paranoid Style in American Politics. And he says that from the beginning of the country all the way through, he talks about this fringe, he says they exist on the left end of the spectrum as well as the right end of the spectrum, but they're obviously more numerous and dangerous on the right end of the spectrum. And he talks about them as as paranoid and they a, a paranoid style that they believe that somebody's trying to take something away from them that belongs to them. And that manifested itself in the McCarthy era. But he has seen it all the way through. So the view of history that this sort of right wing fringe sees is that we, instead of the liberal view, which we started out with some pretty good ideas, but only a few people could partake in the democracy, and we're trying to expand the democracy, the view of the paranoid element is the opposite. It says we started out pure and good with lots of liberty and no government. And the Wild West was open and anybody could do whatever they wanted. And it was a time of, of opportunity because the, the West was there and you could go make your own way. The, the cowboy myth, mm-hmm. the idea that we're self-sufficient and we don't need government. Right. Self-made that, man. Yep. Right. The self-made man. And their view is the opposite, which is we started out pure and good. And all of these sort of people who say they're looking for fairness, they're not. They're, they're trying to make rules and they're they're taking away liberty and taking away freedom. And in that view, America is going down the tubes. And so they're willing to engage in hardball tactics in order to prevent this calamity. 
they are trying to maintain power, but they believe that they're trying to hold power against a corrupting influence that's destroying what's what's good. And it's really two parallel views. Did we start out wonderful in all this freedom? Well, but freedom for who, right? But if you believe in hierarchy, then it was freedom for the ones who were capable. Mm -hmm. So, you know, the Native Americans were primitive, and so they didn't deserve to be in control. It's two very competing mindsets, two very competing ways of seeing history. Yeah. And you talk about this purity, you use the term purity. Purity is really in direct contrast to democracy in a way, right? I mean, purity is really the opposite of democracy, I think. Right. Because democracy is lots of people participate. It's very hard to get a consensus and checks and balances are good because the checks and balances prevented Trump from becoming a dictator because there were enough institutions pushing back against him. So checks and balances are good. Without checks and balances, change can happen quickly. When Trump is trying to make himself a dictator, we're really happy that we have these checks and balances to slow things down. But when you want something to happen quickly, those same checks and balances can frustrate you. And right, democracy, actually Putin said democracy is is messy. That was his word. It's not orderly. Authoritarianism is orderly. It's like everybody knows their place and everybody has their place. The brain cell doesn't try to be the foot cell and the foot cell doesn't try to be the brain cell. That society is orderly. And so democracy is disorderly because everybody's pulling their direction. And the bigger tent you have with your party, the more you have that going on where a party like you can see in the politics the last few days that the Republican Party, once their members in line, they fall in line. It's orderly. It's in some ways people find it safe and they particularly like it when the structure has them on top. Right. Of course. I want to get your thoughts on a couple of things since we're lawyers and, um, you know, as a trial lawyer, uh, I have a criminal defense practice as well as a civil trial practice. I'm a former prosecutor. So this is a no-brainer to me to hold the president accountable in both an impeachment and in outside of the impeachment in, in criminal proceedings and or civil proceedings. I want to get your take on that. Well, I agree. I absolutely agree. The healthiest thing for the democracy would be for the Senate to convict him in the Senate. Because the Senate, unlike a jury, the Senate represents the people, you know, that 100 senators represent, you know, the entire population. To have the insurrection and Trump condemned for this behavior by the Senate would be very um, healthy for the democracy. I'm afraid it's not going to happen. Trump should be held accountable criminally because the crimes are just endless, right? Where I run into trouble and where people get tend to get mad at me is when People say, if he's not criminally prosecuted, then rule of law fails. If this doesn't happen, that comes from lack of, I mean, that's almost a cliche on Twitter. Everybody who breaks the law doesn't get punished. It can't happen. We wouldn't want, I said at one point, all of the Trump supporters, you can't build a big enough jail for them all. And it wouldn't help if you could, that while it certainly should happen, There's also problems with imprisoning a cultural hero for a lot of people. There's ways things can backfire. There's ways things that um, cannot go so well. 
there's a fantasy that if somehow a jury finds him guilty, then his support's going to dissolve. Right. And it's more likely to be the opposite. Right. It's more likely to be the opposite. So while, yes, he definitely needs to be held accountable, and I would never say he doesn't, the problem comes from attaching that to if it doesn't, that's what this means. How are you going to get an impartial jury in this, in this case? Sure. Um, and I think some people thought, well, the prosecutor picks the jury. Well, <laughs> no, <laughs> no, I, no. You probably would agree with this. There's a much better chance of getting him on financial crimes where the jury can't really go against the weight of where it's documentary evidence. The great example of that was on the Manafort trial. Right. You know, it was a paper trial and it's very, very hard to not convict when it's right there in front of you. And there was actually a, a very, very strong Trump supporter on that jury. I don't know if you, you knew yeah. that or, and she, she told the story like, you know, I didn't want to convict the guy, but what are we supposed to do? It, it's right here in black and white. And you're a hundred percent right. I mean, that's one of the issues on appeal is if the verdict mm -hmm. is completely against the weight of the evidence. Mm -hmm. uh, although appellate courts don't like to overturn, it's very hard to get Trump on the things that we really should get him on. But I do think that people maybe misunderstand the uses of punishment, mm -hmm. you know, and sometimes I've challenged people and they end up, I keep pushing back against what do you think punishment's gonna actually do? Right. And then they kind of come back to, well, it'll make me feel really good. <laughs> and then we're yeah. in the dark side of human nature, you know, that it's, that's not supposed to be, sure. um, that's supposed to be vengeance. Right. But, but I also think there's that sense of just because it may have backlash, just because it may not accomplish some goal that people think it should accomplish, there still should be some That's not a reason process. not to. Right. That's not a reason not right. to. Right. Exactly. I think it's the criminal defense lawyer in me who pushes back against the idea that punishment you know, what is the nature of punishment? Mm -hmm. What are the aces of punishment? And we have a political problem and a political problem cannot really be solved with the criminal yeah. justice. Great system. point. It's really happened when the, when the defund the police thing happened, when people were chanting this, because I thought, yes, that's my, now maybe I can make people understand why the criminal justice system doesn't solve social problems. The criminal justice system doesn't solve poverty. It doesn't really solve the kinds of, that's, so defund the police is, was really all about look for solutions outside of criminal justice system. Now maybe people will understand that um, the criminal justice system has use and it's important, but at the same time, and it can solve certain problems. It can get violent people off the streets when you have to do that. A person who's just going to keep swindling people out of their money, you can get that to stop. But when you have a political movement, when you have an anti um, political movement, when you have, say, one, one third of the population that is embracing, that wants to overthrow an election, the criminal justice system isn't, isn't going to solve that particular problem. But again, that's not a reason not to. The problem with the if it doesn't happen, then leaves, leads to doomsaying. Right. So that's where if we don't get Trump out of office in 2018, it's all over. Well, you can't. So then what are you going to do next? Good point. And, and I wanted to run this by you, too, about, you know, one third of the country's population who would elect an authoritarian. This is our reality. And where do we go? Local politics, mm -hmm. local politics. That's where it matters. And one of the things that was really wonderful 
um, that people saw with the election was how important these, the local election boards. This is really important. So I live in a small town here on the Central Coast. I live in California and I am in a college town. And so you think, okay, liberal, look at a map where a little speck of blue mm-hmm. and it'd be a pink. Okay, we also have Devin Nunes from California. You know, it's not all, sure. it's not all um, you know, liberal. Even in San Francisco, you get 25%, 30% voting Republican. And so here we have in our local town, trying to get into the school boards, trying to get into the election boards, we have definitely conspiracy theory cuckoos trying to get in. And they're very dedicated and they're very energetic. And sometimes the big sleeping majority doesn't have the same energy that they have. And so election boards, local politics is really the most important thing people can do. Also supporting candidates, all kinds of civic engagement. But right now when they're trying to get, you know, state legislatures, a few state legislatures are trying to pass legislation to allow a legislature to over overrule the will of the people in an election. So that's state level. The way to combat that is, is really local. If the political psychologists are correct, they say about a third of the population is naturally authoritarian. That should be evenly distributed, but it isn't because people are now choosing where they want to live based on their politics. If a third can grab this much power, then the more people who get involved in local politics get on the election board. If you can't run for office yourself, work your hardest to get people into these very, very local, and then of course, state level. That's sort of grassroots how ultimately we we fight it. Because if these right-wing extremists get into enough local politics, then it's very hard to contain that. Yeah. In your blog post, uh, on the limits of punishment, you ask the question, what will strengthen democracy? And you list uh, reforming the courts, obviously making D.C. a state, the gerrymandering issue. One of the things you list is find a way to stop or slow the spread of lies. Now, we had an insurrection on the Capitol, a deadly insurrection on the Capitol based on a big lie. And we've had the, the fire hose of falsehoods. Um, That's nice to say, and we can't pretend to have the answer on that, but is that something that falls on the press, you know, the media in combination with just better civic education? What is the answer? I think all the above, including understanding that we're up against people who know they're lying. There are Trump supporters who are true believers who believe what they're told. And then there are the deliberate, the people Mm -hmm. are deliberately lying. So Holly would be one of the deliberate liars. Um, I, t- mm-hmm. Ted Cruz is lying on Ted purpose. Ted Cruz, yeah, sure. Right. So they're lying on purpose. So they're, they're lying as a political mm-hmm. weapon, as a political strategy. Right. And, so, and they know they're doing it. They know yeah. that's what they're doing. Yeah. I'm cheering some of these, um, these defamation lawsuits right now, personally. The Dominion, I guess a new one came up. They're suing Fox. There was something making the rounds again on Twitter that annoyed me because it was wrong. People were insisting that you have the right to lie. Okay, well, sort of, (laughs) except for perjury, except for lying on your taxes, except for fraud, except for, you know, there's a a lot of exceptions. Mm -hmm. And, um, And going after media outlets is really tricky because we don't want to have the government deciding whether a media outlet is telling the truth. I think the civil civil lawsuits seem to me to be one way 
to contain it. Um, I'd like to have Section 280 clarified. Mm -hmm. um, right now it's lacking clarity, I think, and there's a lot of confusion out there about it. You know, the fairness doctrine, I mean, there's some things that can help, but I think it, it also comes back to local politics in a lot of ways. You know, in our town, one of the things that's happening is these conspiracy theorists are trying to um, get into the school boards. We had one on the school board last summer who was saying that the virus was a hoax on our school board. And so is it a little thing to get as many people as you can together and vote them out? Mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, fi find out who at the local level, you know, is spreading these theories and try to, you know, vote them out if possible. Yeah, there's, you know, a number of things. Education, I think there's probably also people who are just vulnerable, some kind of a weak mind that the, this QAnon stuff like works on, whatever it is. I think there's a weakness. There are just some people who are um, susceptible, but we're sort of in psychology here. But it would seem to me that some people are susceptible to it. And there are experts out there who are talking about how to reach out to family members. You know, you don't want to mock them, you know, that perhaps seeing it as some kind of even a, a mental disability, you know, something that they can't really help having that inclination, but it's a, it's a big problem. Yeah. I mean, that's something that when mental illness has always been around, you look back in history, conspiracy theories go all the way back. But the difference is when you have demagogues who take advantage of that, as was done here. Again, it's accountability for these, you know, these irresponsible actions that are uh, being taken by people who know better. And, and that's the frustrating part of the whole thing, because we could do all of these things, right? We can do all of these things that you talk about. And there's going to be a Josh Hawley and a, and a Ted Cruz who are going to take advantage of, of the situation. So anyway, thank you for, for everything you do. I mean, I, I, I mean that because you, you really have been a, a very important and vital voice to a lot of people. You know, there have been times, in fact, someone had tweeted something and they totally misunderstood and they didn't have the right understanding of either the Constitution or really how things work. And you took care of it nicely, neatly and laid it all out and, and did it in such a great way. And, and people really appreciate that, as you know, from your followers who show their appreciation. Thank you again and uh, good luck. Thank you. On behalf of David, once again, thank you for listening to this episode. Please take a moment to subscribe and give us a rating at Apple Podcasts. We'll see you next time on The Trial Brief.